when you have folks, the clinicians and the, the sort of the biomedical science side of things really surging ahead with all this great information, all, all the sort of genomic advances that we are learning about and the information and the risk algorithms. But how do you apply that in a way that's really going to make a difference without considering all these other sort of disciplines that really can inform how we do this in a way that will actually yield the best outcome? Welcome to the Illumina Genomics Podcast, where leading scientists discuss their genomics research and how genomics is shaping their understanding of science and nature. Here's your host, Paul Broman. Well, greetings, and welcome to episode 64 of the Genomics Podcast. In today's show, we'll be discussing how behavioral medicine can help to effectively translate genomic discoveries into clinical and public health practice. Genomics is continuing to impact on screening and testing technologies, and so stakeholders within the healthcare system are increasingly exposed to genomics data outputs. And in addition, the rise of direct-to-consumer genetics has increased the awareness of genomics data outputs more widely throughout society. But how do we interact with genetics and genomics outputs? Do we all equally understand them? And do they impact how we behave? Well, the American Psychological Association defines behavioral medicine as a field that applies behavioral theories and methods to the prevention and treatment of medical and psychological disorders. And behavioral medicine holds the promise of helping scientists understand the impacts of genomics outputs on individuals and their lives. To discuss this topic, I'm very pleased to welcome Dr. Catherine Wang to the show. Catherine is Associate Professor in the Community Health Sciences Department at Boston University. Listen to Catherine explain her research on how individuals adopt new health technologies, including genomics and molecular diagnostics. Dr. Catherine Wang, I want to welcome you to the Genomics Podcast. You know, we spend a lot of time on this show talking about the impacts that genomics technologies are continuing to make on medicine and on, on patient care. And I think as genomics increasingly becomes a part of this, this healthcare system, patients and other stakeholders are going to be increasingly confronted with genomics technologies, genomics outputs. So I'm really happy that you've agreed to sit down with me and to tell our listeners about some of the science and research about how people interact with and make decisions from genomics innovations. So can you start off by introducing yourself and telling us just a little bit about your background? Sure. Thank you for the invitation. It's a pleasure to be here. I am a behavioral scientist by training, and so my background is in psychology and public health. I have always been interested in how people understand complex problems, how they understand risk, and how we communicate this information in a way that may facilitate or deter people from taking action to improve their health. So I'd like to talk a little bit about a, a recent publication that you wrote. The Society for Behavioral Medicine asked you and some of your colleagues to participate in a working group to consider how to integrate what I've come to understand as behavioral medicine, which I don't know a lot about, and we'll talk a little bit about it, but how to integrate behavioral medicine with clinical genetics and genomics. And 
Your group recently published some of the results of your of your analysis in an editorial in the American Journal of Human Genetics. So for our listeners that would like to read that publication, they can find it using PubMed ID 3073569. And I'd like to talk about your findings because I think they're really important and really insightful. But first, for a bunch of us who are not intimately familiar with the field of behavioral medicine, can you discuss that a bit and tell us what it is and give us an example or some examples of what behavioral medicine involves? Sure. Behavioral medicine is really an interdisciplinary field. It really thinks about how the biology, the psychology, and sort of other sciences that really focus on explaining human behavior come together and uh, help us understand health and illness. And it really focuses on the decisions people make, what they come to when faced with certain medical issues. And what we focus on here in this context is really understanding all the different facets that may contribute to the actual problem that we're dealing with, and then think about really innovative solutions from a lot of different disciplines to try and come up with innovative interventions to tackle the issues that don't just come from sort of a biomedical perspective. And one doesn't typically associate behavioral medicine with genomics. So what was the rationale for kind of integrating those two things? I think it's there's a few of us who have been in the behavioral science world that have been really interested in genomics for years. And some of us come from anthropology or psychology or other sort of social science type disciplines to really understand how people are understanding the information that's being presented to them, how people are processing it and making decisions about whether or not to do something like undergo genetic testing. Right. So I first came into this world, really, this field, really thinking about really witnessing. This is when uh, BRCA1 was first identified and people were sort of trying to implement this in clinic. And I was in a clinical setting in the Toronto area and really seeing women come to clinic and be completely confused about what this was, what the clinicians were talking about, how long it would be take to get test results back, what the test results would tell them, what they wouldn't tell them. I was really interested in a lot of doctor-patient communication work at the time. And that really started spearheading my interest in really trying to understand how can we help these women how can we communicate in a way that isn't so overwhelming? What are the supports they need afterwards should they test positive? And what are the reactions or decisions they make based on this sort of sequence of events that keep happening uh, when they start this process? And you gave an example in your editorial about a woman interested in her genetic breast cancer risk, right? And you mm -hmm. just mentioned BRCA1 here. So can you talk about some of the challenges that a woman like that would face and how behavioral medicine can potentially address some of the challenges that she would face. I think in the context of the op-ed that I think you're referring to, that was a situation where someone was engaging in recreational ancestry testing and then decided to pursue some additional services to interpret her DNA and stumbled across a result that she was not expecting. And we know in psychology that there's variation in people's sort of informational seeking needs, um, informational needs. And there's actual various concepts that we've, various psychologists have coined over the past couple decades where, you know, we have our monitors and our blunters. Some people just don't want to know the information and they do worse if you give it to them. Really? Yes. And then, and then you have your, your high information seekers or your monitors who really need the information, want the information, are more anxious to some extent, but need to know and need to have it regardless if it's good or bad. 
So for folks who come in who are sort of surprised, they're caught off guard, they haven't really thought about this, they may be those type of people who really don't want the information, and suddenly it's presented to them. And that's really where we see a lot of more issues because it was something that was surprised, it was unexpected. So if you think about what the CDC is currently recommending for genomics in terms of certain tests that should be tier one level population level screening that we should be implementing. And so usually, it, you know, it focuses on these cancers. So hereditary breast and ovarian cancer, we're talking about Lynch syndrome and uh, familial hypocholesterolemia. These are kind of like the big three that we've sort of focused on. And from a sort of clinical standpoint, we're like, okay, well, how do we screen? How do we do this? Let's build some tools. So we'll build these like tools, whether they're in the electronic medical record or these separate tools that come in and, and we can try and implement more population-based screening to try and just identify women who should be referred to genetics and who should perhaps see, not even go and get testing, just get into the system so that we can get you sort of, you know, we can start monitoring you perhaps differently. We find these people who are at elevated risk based on national guidelines who should be getting genetic services. And we ask them, are you interested? Would you like to then go to genetics? We can refer you to genetics. 60% immediately decline. Wow, that's high. That's really high. Okay. So 40% say, yes, they're interested. And then you have another level where it's like, okay, they're interested. We refer, do they show up? If you're dealing with a diverse patient population, underrepresented, underserved patient population, it starts funneling very quickly and you don't get very many people coming in the door. These are people who have bigger issues in their lives. To deal Other with. issues that may be coming into place. So, but a lot of it, I think, is sort of trying to understand from a behavioral science perspective, why aren't they coming in? Okay, the problem may be we're not finding them. Well, now we've built tools. We've built tools. We've implemented tools. Perhaps we've implemented well, perhaps we've implemented poorly, whatever the case may be. Maybe that's something we can fix pretty quickly. But say we had an ideal system and we identified these people, they're not coming in. Wow. They're choosing not to come in for various reasons. Yeah. And so this is where I think you can really bring in sort of decision scientists, communication scientists, implementation scientists. These are all sort of just you know, different disciplines that all sort of feed into behavioral medicine to try and understand different issues that may be causing the problem and trying to test different solutions to remedy that that could then facilitate the clinical integration of these types of programs. Can you talk a little bit about the links between genetics and behavior changes in individuals? I mean, you were talking a little bit about some of that research, but what does the research show generally? I mean, do people change their behavior in response to <clears throat> genetics? Oh, this is such a common question. Um, <laughs> And it's such a loaded question. <laughs> and so the meta-analyses that are out there that are frequently cited will say that there's no evidence to indicate that learning that you are at genetic risk for disease X, Y, or Z will motivate you to change your behavior. I think the field has really come to a point where we need to pivot in how we ask the question. It's not about whether or not genetics changes behavior. It's really about in what context, for whom, when, how, what's the timing. It's really thinking about for whom does it motivate. We also have evidence in the social science literature that not all genetic information is equally motivating. So we've seen in some psychology studies where, you know, if you focus on something like, let's just say, and my favorite is, is an example in alcohol, where they gave genetic information that was either ALDH2. It was feedback on either your alcohol dependency or your alcohol-related cancer risk. 
And it was a really neat study where they found that if they got the information on that was sort of framed as a cancer risk, it motivated subsequent efforts to reduce drinking. Oh, interesting. Whereas if you framed it as alcohol dependency, it had no effect. Okay, so, you know, you say a big bucket, genetic risk. Well, genetic risk has its nuances, and it's how people interpret it. And in, when you randomize these big clinical studies, you know, you have to look within the intervention arm, with, which got genetic information, to see what information did they get. Right, because okay. in these studies, they're, they're capturing everything. Everybody. And so then a good, the majority of the people in the intervention arm got low risk, average risk, not high, you know, you're not at increased risk. So then you have this tiny pocket of people who got increased risk. And then you're looking at all these crazy behaviors that really risk is only one factor. And I'd say definitely in the, in the context of cancer, where you are giving risk on high penetrant, in most cases, high penetrant um, genes that really do have implications for your cancer risk, we do see behavior change. We do see people, what are the behavior changes we care about? Well, we see people changing their screening patterns. We see people, you know, perhaps... So things that actually make an impact. Make an impact, make a clinical medical impact. But in these other sort of genetic studies where the risk is is maybe twofold, is it really enough of an increase in risk for people to feel like, oh, I'm I'm really affected by this, I really should take action, and then what are we asking people to do? Well, we're talking about complex behaviors like physical activity and diet, and and there's a lot of things that come into play. You know, the weather influences your physical activity patterns. Fresh fruits and vegetables, seasons affect this. And so it's, it's one of those funny things where we are talking about complex health behaviors and a little bit of risk information, is it really going to be that meaningful? Probably not, but it doesn't mean that it isn't enough to motivate some people in certain contexts to perhaps take action they normally wouldn't, especially if they have an extensive family history, if they've seen people in their family really suffer through various conditions, and if the genetics that we are talking about really actually has important implications for whether or not that condition may manifest, then you're going to see some different outcomes here. I hear this concept precision or personalized all the time. I mean, for genetics, for I did a podcast here in Boston with someone who was talking about precision in nutrition, actually, that your nutrition is dependent on your own personal genetics. So I, you know, in a way, it's not surprising that your decision making would be personalized as well. So I think it's but I guess that's that's where things are moving, right? There is. And it's sort of like thinking about the person in personalized or precision medicine. It's You can throw anything at this person, but they also have control over, for the most part, a lot of things they choose to do and engage with. And I think our issue now is like, okay, we've built it. How do we get them to come? Because coming may be good for them, but they may not view it that way. But now that we've built the tools and we put them in systems and everything's working and all the kinks are out and IT has come in and dealt with all their problems and we screen, it's like, then how do we frame it so that we get them now to that next step? and make them realize that on top of everything else they're dealing with, especially with our patient population here at Boston Medical. So it's not one, it's not as simple as one single stakeholder being responsible for that. This Mm-mm. has got to be input it's a from system. everybody. And that's, that's really, and I think the reason why that article that you started off with was so critical for us to sort of put out was really thinking about how do we bring the other players to the table when you have folks, the clinicians and the the sort of the biomedical science side of things, really surging ahead with all this great information, all all the sort of genomic advances that we are learning about and the information and the risk algorithms. But how do you apply that in a way that's really going to make a difference without considering all these other sort of disciplines that really can inform how we do this in a way that will actually yield the best outcome? 
you're involved. I know you're involved in a project called Vicky, right? <laughs> V-I-C-K-Y. Um, it's a project where you're creating and implementing a, a kind of a, if I understand it, it's a virtual genetic counseling approach to kind of help overcome genetic literacy barriers in different populations. So can you talk a little bit about Vicky? What are you trying to accomplish with Vicky? And what have you kind of found with that project? Sure. So Vicky came along because of some prior work I was doing with the CDC. And at this time, I was still at Michigan. And we were working on a cooperative agreement with folks at the CDC looking at evaluating a family health history tool that they had developed. And this was the, really the precursor to the My Family Health Portrait, which was then launched by the Office of the Surgeon General, to really, as a tool, to increase genetic literacy. So how do we get this information out there without sort of educating on like what genes are and what right. chromosomes are and like what we always do and we fail at. But how do we get this in a way that people could better document their family history and perhaps encourage them to share it with their clinician or the, and learn about diseases that may be running through their family, which all is really related to risk prediction. And what really struck me was how potentially challenging it would be for a diverse patient population who didn't necessarily have the literacy skills or the computer skills to get through these types of platforms. Right, yeah. And we started doing some work in communities, in our Hispanic, uh, Latino communities in the Philadelphia area and the African-American communities as well, and asking them just really, what does family health history mean to you? What are these tools? Could you even use them? Do you like them? We sat down with a bunch of very different tools and asked people to use them and we would watch them and ask them to talk out loud and think about what they're understanding, why are we asking these questions, and, and really, you know, and, and I think in certain pockets, they really like family history, so it's a really good foray into sort of introducing genomics to the public. And what we found really quickly was that there were going to be some challenges with using these types of tools. We found that the reading grade levels were exceedingly high. Uh, you're talking about maybe a 13 grade reading level for a lot of these tools. To use the platform, to mm -hmm. use that portal. Mm-hmm. Some colleagues here at Boston University and uh, have been collaborating for years with folks in a computer lab at Northeastern to really tackle sort of communication issues differently and use a platform, a relational agent, sort of an embodied conversational agent. Uh, you call it a virtual avatar, you call it, but regardless, it's a character you know, on your screen who will talk to you, who will ask you questions. You can program this. They can interact with patients and patients can reply by like pre-filled buttons on a touch screen and oh, okay. that's how you have your conversation. And so you don't put that pressure and the burden of navigating through pages, clicking, doing all those things, drop down menus, all that stuff on the patient, the system takes you through based on how you answer questions that the agent asks you, the counselor asks you. So we decided to try and build a virtual counselor. And so we build Vicky. So Vicky is an acronym that's like, you know, virtual counselor for knowing your family history. And we kind of thought, you know, can we build Vicky to mimic a counselor? And so we had our director of genetic counseling here. Actually, we filmed her. She <laughs> was collecting a pedigree. And then we literally wrote the script based on how she collected a three-generation oh, wow. pedigree. And we programmed it into Vicky. And, um, and did a pilot and found right away that patients could use her. You know, we've been doing a trial and the trial just wrapped up and we're in the process of sort of writing up our results. But overall, I mean, we've seen it before. Our patients love Vicky. And I think the funnest thing that we've noticed is that she will, like people will disclose certain things to a system that they don't disclose to a human. 
Well, also before the the mic w- was on, we were talking about different communities that have different experiences and different histories with interacting with the medical community. Absolutely. And there are there are communities that are really comfortable doing that, and there are communities that are maybe not very comfortable doing that. So this kind of tool could actually really help on that on the, in that aspect as well. No, I never thought about it that way. Probably. I mean, I think it's more just who do you trust? Yeah. And it was really interesting when we when we did a lot of beta testing with Vicky when we were first developing her um, <laughs> personified her again. Um, we asked these questions of like, do you feel comfortable with Vicky? Would you do trust Vicky? Do you? And the scores were always really high. Interesting. And it's it's a computer program, but it felt more real. And she was asking important questions. It made them think. They would get on the phone and call relatives. I'm doing this program. I need to implement all this. Like, Tell me this information. It's like, where is it going? It's like, I don't know. I'm just doing this thing. But, you know, and then we would give them a benefit. We would give them. We would hand them their tree and be like, share this with your doctor. And one of the outcomes that we're going to look at is whether or not they did. There are these communities that have health disparities in terms of access to care, in terms of outcomes. So... In addition to Vicky, are there any other ways that behavioral medicine could potentially, you know, address some of those health disparities? You know, access is such a funny term for me because when I think when folks think of access, they think of sort of like clinical access. I can't get to the doctor. I don't have insurance. I don't have transportation. There's sort of the logistical system aspect issues. When I think of access, I come from it from a very different perspective. Like, okay, so what is it that we're doing that really isn't working for our community in need? And did we design something in a way that they can't read it? Did we design something in a way that generates a visceral reaction and they're just like, I don't trust you? Or, you know, who's this guy on the platform? Blah, blah, blah. He doesn't look like me. He doesn't identify with me. What, what you want my data? And I don't. So the yeah. trust, there's so many different ways to approach our community. And I think the shift has been who have we been leaving out? So when you think about these national efforts like the All of Us Research Project, it's really changing how we approach our community. It's really part of its marketing. Part of it is thinking about how we be more inclusive. What have we done wrong? Can we admit to our mistakes? And can we try and identify champions who can help us really think about the issues that we're missing, that we aren't addressing, so that what access to research, access to clinical trials, access to just various technologies that we're developing. What are the factors that we aren't addressing here that preclude people from even engaging with us in the first place? And part of it is knowledge and misunderstandings, part of it's fear, part of it's trust. But what matters depends on the community. And if we don't really understand that and haven't gone in to do a proper assessment of it, then we're fooling ourselves into thinking that anything we design is really going to get used. And so we've seen situations, which is really unfortunate, when you think about population-level efforts for genomics, let's implement a tool to screen. You will have, we've seen this, where you will have clinicians say they won't even offer it to their patients who are on Medicare, Medicaid. They won't offer it to certain people because they just don't have the resources. Even if we identified them, they wouldn't have the downstream resources to deal with this. So it's not even offered in the first place. So now we have to go after the clinician behavior because it's sort of like you are making decisions for them in a way. And if this is something we are trying to do on a population level because we're missing these people, we're going to miss them more because the clinicians are being a gatekeeper here. Wow. You know, over the next several years, there's going to be a lot of development in the technology for sure. But what excites you specifically about some of this new technology and how it'll become better integrated with behavioral medicine? Are you 
sort of hopeful, you know, to end this interview, are you kind of ending on a hopeful note that these two disciplines can be integrated with each, with each other? Just talk a little bit about what the future looks like and what, what you're excited oh, about. Oh, I'm really hopeful. I think what we are seeing is a lot more crosstalk between disciplines. We have, in the last couple of years, based on the efforts that we were talking about in that publication, really made efforts to reach out to other societies to bring in the genetics you know, the behavioral science folks are going to American College of Medical Genetics meetings or American Society of Human Genetics meetings, and two-thirds, three-quarters of the information presented is way over my head. Um, <laughs> but <too>. some of it, <laughs> But some of it is really interesting. And it's like, oh, look at this interesting implementation science or a communication worker. And so you are seeing some more sort of crossing of some disciplines. You're seeing a lot of genetic counselors start coming to behavioral medicine meetings. You're seeing us um, going to the genetic meetings and us realizing that we need that we have synergies. We're all trying to do the same thing. We're just thinking about the questions really differently. And I think it's forming these teams now that are really trying to address these problems in a way that I, I haven't really seen before. And I think some of the funding streams have shifted a bit to really facilitate that, those types of efforts like Cancer Moonshot. And so we're really seeing some really nice teams, multidisciplinary teams come together to really start trying to address some of these questions. And so I think because of that, I think the data that's going to come in the next couple of years is going to be really exciting. Awesome. Well, Catherine, I just want to thank you so much for sitting down discussing with us. It's been a fascinating interview. Really, I've got the sense, I think our listeners have too, of you know the impact that all of this genomics technology is going to have is really dependent on how people are going to interact with it and understand it and ultimately use it. So thanks for joining us on the Illumina Genomics Podcast. My pleasure. Thank you. Hey, if you like today's show, please subscribe to the Genomics Podcast. You can listen to our show everywhere podcasts are found. And you can even ask Alexa to play the Illumina podcast. Join me next time for the first episode in a four-part podcast series on clinical whole genome sequencing. I'll be talking with Dr. Shamul Chowdhury. He's clinical laboratory director at Rady Pediatric Genomic and Systems Medicine Institute in San Diego. We'll be discussing Project Baby Bear, and clinical studies on whole genome sequencing as a first-tier test in rare disease, right here on the Illumina Genomics Podcast. <laughs>